0: Alright, I'm uh, continuing today with uh, Galatians and looking at chapter 4. I'll just read verse 3 to 5 and uh, I'm going to focus on, on these verses then. I think though they're at the center of chapter 4. So also while we were children, we held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In this passage, uh, Paul's equating two things, and it may not be immediately obvious. Uh, He's equating the deliverance of the Jews from the bondage of slavery, that is, uh, That what's happening there is illustrative or a shadow or a pointer to the real slavery that he's going to talk about and to the real deliverance from the slavery of sin. Uh, Sin and death, then, is the focus that the New Testament is going to bring. Um, And uh, it, it is actually a development, an understanding that was not there with the Jews. He equates the slavery of the law to the slavery of pagan idolatry. That's, that's quite an unusual thing. He, he, he can ask, uh, you know, he's saying here to the, to the uh, Galatians, don't go back to the law. There are these Judaizers who've come in and are trying to get them to be circumcised and obey the food laws, Paul says that would be the equivalent of becoming pagan idolaters like they used to be. That's a very interesting uh, parallel. We can ask a couple of basic questions of this passage, and I think we can recognize that very often the gospel that we hear uh, is not really the gospel of the New Testament that we're hearing right here. You know, the popular gospel of American evangel- evangelicalism. It's not one of a real deliverance from a real slavery, you know, to pagan nationalism or to an idolatrous religion. Uh, rather, it's something like, well, Jesus died for our sins on the cross. He took God's wrath and now we can go to heaven because we believe in him. What Paul is describing here has little to do with God's wrath and everything to do with the slavery to sin. This slavery is as real as the slavery of the Jews in bondage in Egypt. It's a real world bondage. And this slavery is on the order of the bondage to the false gods that the Galatians worship, the false ideologies. And deliverance is a real-world deliverance from one religio-cultural, socio-political understanding to a new understanding. So we might ask, who is under the bondage, you know, that Paul describes here? Under the bondage to the elemental things of the world. Well, he's arguing in both Romans and Galatians, all people are under this bondage. He argues in Romans H that Creation itself is in travail under this bondage. And that it is a good, you know, it's a good thing we, to have our sins forgiven and to have the hope of heaven, not in any way to take away from that. But to reduce the gospel simply to this is to miss the broad and real world scope of what Christ is doing in this cosmic redemption. The cross is not simply a mechanism To forgive your sins. It's much more than that. Certainly it's that. But it's much more than simply achieving uh, your personal forgiveness. But it's delivering us. Christ's life, death, and resurrection is a means of real world, worldwide release from slavery. And the gospel of of the New Testament is about cosmic deliverance. And so Paul equates the legalism of the Judaizers who are advocating a return to the law and idolatry. He says, however, at the time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. I'm reading from verses 8 and 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. So specifically, you know, we've said, I said that circumcision and food laws, which were the markers of ethnic Judaism, is being advocated on the part of some Christians as necessary to salvation. And Paul is saying that to practice the law, to return to the law, to return to ethnic Judaism at this point, would be the equivalent of bound down and worshiping an idol. And what Paul has discovered, what is unfolded in the New Testament, is that the evil of idolatry, which was indicated by the law, is not an evil from which the law delivers. Both idolatry and the law, you know, we are equated here with the elemental things. Uh, the basic principles of this world, the way that the world walks. And Paul will speak then of a broadened notion of idolatry in which even t- the, the tendency to Judaism, it's two things. It's falling back into the slavery from which you've been delivered. It's following back into a slavery to these elemental spirits like your former idolatrous religion. So the idolatrous pagans won to Christ in Galatia. They're not, you know, think of here of the story of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Daniel and his three friends and what they're, they're cast into the fiery furnace. All of that because they would not bow down and worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had, had made. And this is the marker in the Old Testament. Of what you know a true Jew is willing to do. Uh, you know, if you had to say what was true a true Jew, could you be a Jew and worship an idol? No, that was the that was the marker. Judaism was a departure from idolatry, and when the Jews fell back into idolatry, this is the reason for the exile you know, in in Babylon and um, their refusal then is what we now recognize is that idolatry though is simply a manifestation of the marring of the image you know we're created in the image of God brought about by sin Jew, Jews say they serve the elemental idolatrous spirits even though they're not practicing an over idolatry um, idolatry then is not the problem, but it's a manifestation of the deeper problem, which is that the image in man, as it's pictured in idolatry, is a marred image. And so Paul has discovered this himself. It's an evil that runs through himself. It runs through all of Israel, all of humanity. Um. We might say that, you know, what is the vocation of man? The vocation of man is we're to be image bearers. We're to, uh, and what's the problem in idolatry? We've made an image rather than being the image. This is not, though, the problem simply of idolaters. This is the problem of all mankind, that we've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. This is what Paul talks about in Romans uh, you know, chapter one, that all uh, have turned to uh, idolatry. And then the Jews are saved out of idolatry, but, but they, of course, turn uh, again and again. You know, think of Aaron crafting the golden calf while his brother is up on Mount Sinai. And so there's a failure of image bearing that is so clear in idolatry But that same failure is the human failure. So the problem of idolatry is addressed in the New Testament. But what is pictured is that uh, it's through the lens of Christ we see that it's a compounded problem. That all people, most especially the Judaizers, the Pharisees, the Jews themselves, have the problem that is manifested in idolatry, but they still have the root problem. You know, if if your problem is idolatry, and that was really, I think, the understanding in the Old Testament, how are you saved? Well, you're saved by being a good Jew, following the law, and not worshiping idols. Idolatry stood over and against Jewish monotheism. It functioned as, you know, uh, the marker of who a pagan was. But already though, in the Old Testament we have the prophets like Amos and Isaiah who realized that all idolatry was harder to shake than they first imagined. Isaiah chapter 6 says you might as well be making human sacrifices as, as sacrificing you know, animals. You might as well be offering up pigs blood. You know, a, 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 a kind of uh, terrible picture here. You might as well be breaking the dogs of uh, necks of dogs rather than lambs. What the, the writer is describing is the Jews, their cultic practices because of their disobedience, were no better than idolatry. Amos chapter 5 makes the same sort of accusation and concludes that apart from justice rolling down like waters and righteousness being established, the the Jewish cultic practices are no better than pagan idolatry. So what was the Jewish idea of salvation? Well, that if you kept yourself away from idol, idols, you keep the law, maintain Jewish identity, this constituted salvation. And of course, in the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus is explaining you people are still slaves, like you were slaves in Israel. You're still like idolaters. Uh, they had not uh, yet turned, you know. Uh, uh, he's saying from their slavery, uh, they they said, "Well, we are Abraham's descendants." Reading from John eight, we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will make be, you will make us free? Jesus answered, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So the slavery from which Jesus delivers afflicts even the Jews. Uh, The term idol doesn't appear in the Gospels. But the critique leveled by the prophets and the emptiness of the cultic practices of the Jews is equated in the Gospels that, you know, it's the same sort of critique. The Pharisees, those Jews, you know, who come out of the Maccabean period, we don't have the, Macca, the book of the Maccabees in the, our, our Bible, but the book of Maccabees is really a kind of reenactment of what's happening with Daniel. That is, the Jews are being forced into idolatry, and they completely refuse this. You know, under the Hasmonean dynasty. And so the Pharisees are these people who come out of that period, they have rid themselves completely of the problem of idolatry. Uh, they've been, you know, their, their family members have been martyred. And so they've they imagine, and maybe we could say that in this sense, if the point of Jewish religion was to get rid of idolatry, it was never better than with the Pharisees. Here are the true Jews, here are the people who, in which the success of the law, the final refinement of Jewish religion has been brought about. We might say the Pharisees are the pinnacle of success of Israel. Maybe we could say if, you know, the Jews are representative of all humankind and the Pharisees are the best of Israel that here is the best that humankind has to offer yet what becomes obvious is that the evil previously associated with the pagan idolaters it's not been purged even among the those who rid themselves of every hint of idolatry Jesus you know calls the Pharisees the devil's children you are you are the sons of your father uh, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning and you do not stand in the truth and you're speaking the native language of their father. The Jesus' point is that the Pharisees, you know, he's not just passing judgment on them. He's not just calling them the devil's children and be done with it, nor is he simply passing judgment on them on Israel's religion but what Jesus is doing and what the New Testament is doing is showing the limited nature of the law of the temple and the sacrifices you know think of Jesus coming into the temple and was his purpose to cleanse Herod's temple well no he says that you are uh, uh, you've done the same thing that you're taking the temple and you've, you've made it uh, that the heart of the practices of the temple have been polluted. And it's this precisely this point that the Jews are going to bring up at his trial, that is, Jesus' criticism of Israel gets him killed. His criticism of the cultic practices of the Jews is precisely the reason that's what that, that they're going to crucify him. So there is no idolatry, overt idolatry in the Gospels. And yet, the first Christian sermon, Do you remember Stephen gets up, one of the first Christian sermons. Stephen gets up, he recounts the history of, of idolatry. And here the, the word idol appears for the first time in the New Testament. And Stephen quotes the verses from Amos and Isaiah that equate the Jewish cultic practices with idolatry. Paul is standing by and approving of the death of Stephen. And you might think, well, no wonder, you know, when Stephen says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet you did not keep it. Well, no wonder Stephen was stoned. For Paul, prior to his encounter with Christ, for the Jews in general, being faultless in regard to the law was salvation. That was their salvation. And Stephen was not only questioning Paul's salvation, but he's accusing him of the worst sort of evil. You've crucified the Messiah. And so being a Jew in good standing was the means of being saved from an uh, an evil and idolatrous religion, they thought. Yet Stephen is saying the evil cuts right through you. It cuts right through Israel. I think that, you know, Paul may have delivered, you know, we've got a very detailed message uh, from you know Paul's recounting of Stephen, I think, in the book of Acts. I think Paul's the one that remembered this sermon because really what Paul's entire theological development is, it's really a kind of development of Stephen's speech. Uh, What Jesus and Stephen and eventually Paul are saying is that the Jews still have the problem of idolatry. And of course, we all have the problem of idolatry. Uh, Judaism is not adequate for salvation. And so Paul, uh, in a sense, provides us with the deep insight into why did they murder Christ? Why did he stand by willingly to murder Stephen? And what he says is that I was blameless for the, in regard to the law. I was zealous in regard to the law. Paul is the, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Here is the best of the best. He's one of the purest servants of the law, exceeding his contemporaries. This is his own description, right? And yet he says, I'm the chief of sinners, because I persecuted the church. He says two things, I'm blameless before the law, and I'm the worst of sinners. I think that there's a causal relation between these two things. Identification with God through the law is distorted by sin. And this distortion didn't show up for Paul the Pharisee. But Paul can look back on his pre-Christian religion, his pre-Christian self, and he sees evil where previously he could not recognize it. So the law does not get at the depth of the problem. The law does not propose a cure for evil and sin. We might say the law is like, I've never had a, 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 what is it, well, I don't know what it is, but where you, they put the blue dye in your in your blood, and I think that's sort of the way the the is it blue dye uh, they put in, and then they follow it um, to find out you know uh, the whether you have cancer. There is the sense that the law is the blue dye that it marks out the problem, but it's not in no way the cure for the problem. To return to the law would be to imagine that what marks and accentuates sin is the cure for sin. Those are two different things. So the problem is much more serious than Paul imagined. And we need to follow Paul's thinking here because I think sometimes we are sort of in the place of the Jews We think the problem of sin is not so serious. The way that N.T. Wright puts it, you know, Paul on the road to Damascus. what What is happening on the road to Damascus? Paul was like a man who on the way to collect a prescribed medication studies the doctor's note and concludes from the recommended remedy that his illness must be far more serious than he supposed. If we read the New Testament rightly, what we're going to say is we have a very serious diagnosis of the cancer that is marked by the law, but it's only through the lens of Christ that we see the degree of the malignancy. We've all got this disease. And it's only through Christ, the great physician, that we can see that this thing is killing all of us. The Jews thought they had the cure. They thought that they had been saved. As Christians, if we don't get this, in other words, if we don't get, okay, here's how Judaism was inadequate, here's the way that Christianity fills out this inadequacy, I'm afraid we're going to misalign, we're going to make the same mistake again. What Paul comes to through the diagnosis of the great physician is, yes, he has a problem It runs right through his own heart. But even more than that, this problem is destroying everyone. It's destroying creation itself. This problem of sin and death is a cosmic slavery from which we all need deliverance. And so Paul's theology, like Stephen is doing... He's going to re-narrate the Old Testament in light of the interpretive lens by which the life, death, and resurrection is pictured as saving us, delivering us from slavery. And perhaps the, the motif that Paul will appeal to again and again is deliverance from slavery, deliverance from out of Egypt. But of course, that wasn't the real, you know, essential deliverance. The Jews really, if you read the Old Testament, apart from the New Testament, is there even the idea that all of humanity is fallen? The Jews didn't have that idea. They thought that, uh, you know, we still have our image-bearing capacities, as is evidenced in our ability to put off idolatry. But what Paul is doing in rereading the Old Testament, he reads the story of Adam, you know, Romans chapter 5, and Adam is understood to have caused a ripple effect throughout all, of, all people. He is the representative human being. A, this ripple has gripped the entire cosmos, and only the second Adam can reverse this. And I'm saying this to explain what Paul is saying here in chapter 4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Who's that? Oh, that's everybody. That's all of us. That we might receive the adoption of sons. What's the problem? You're alienated from God. You're distant from God. You're in exile. Who? Everybody. What's the cure to be adopted into the family? Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So the evil identified by Christ is of the same type as the evil exposed by the law, but it is an evil with a height, depth, and breadth that no Jew, not even Paul, could have imagined apart from Christ. But now as a Christian, he reads the cosmic rescue of all mankind back into the stories of the Old Testament. That's what's happening, you know, when he reads the story of Abraham. He said, well, actually, Abraham is the father of us all who believe. Abraham faced death, and he had resurrection faith, Romans chapter 4. In Galatians 3, he identifies the seed promised to Abraham, and the seed that's in his loins is the gospel in utero? The exile, as it's pictured, you know, in both Daniel nine and, and Isaiah forty to fifty-five, they they're enslaved to you know slavery and idolatry always go together in the Old Testament. Why are they in, in, enslaved to foreign nations? It's the direct result of Israel's idolatry. But Paul now recognizes that the exile from God's presence due to sin is the pointer to an alienation affecting all people. You know, think here of Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups into one and broke down the barrier. God sent forth His Son... He says in Galatians, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that we all might be able, through the Spirit, to cry out, Abba, Father. So in the death of the Messiah, evil can no longer simply be equated with paganism or idolatry. Idolatry is only a manifestation of the universal problem of sin and death. I may have just said a very simple thing there. I think the Reformation misses this. I think that the Jews miss this. I think that, what's our problem? Is our problem, you know, simply paganism? Is our problem simply, no, the problem is a deep problem of which uh, idolatry is the manifestation. The real problem is sin and death. Um, This is what the, uh, you know, Paul traces in Romans 3, the violence, the history of violence and bloodshed. He, As he tells that story in Romans 3, who's that story about? Well, in some places it's about the Gentiles, in some places about the Jews. He's just quoting a series of passages from the Old Testament, but it's inclusive of everybody. This is what the law accentuates, but it's not within the power of the law to cure it. Uh, And so Paul will equate the Jewish confusion. This is their problem. We need to understand what the Jews are confused about. To understand what the danger that we might be confused about. What did they think salvation was? They thought life was to be had through the law, through being an ethnic Jew. Um, And this is really the original sin of Adam and Eve, right? Right? Adam and Eve think that in some way by becoming the arbiters of the law, by taking control of the law, that this is, there's life to be had. There's life to be had in, you know, the first couple, thou shalt not eat. And this is the screen, you know, oh God's holding out on us that if we in some way manipulate the law, transgress the law, Become ourselves the embodiment of the law, then we'll gain life, and that's Cain. You know, Cain says, "Well, uh, uh, I'm going to take my own vengeance." Lamech comes along, pictures himself as the embodiment of the law. If Cain would be avenged seven times, Lamech will be avenged seventy times seven. The divine, the Pharisees represent the pure distilled form of an idolatrous law keeping they imagine that they are the embodiment of the law they imagine that there is life in the law this is not just the pharisees problem this is the human problem that the pharisees are illustrative of that they are pointing us to And so the Pharisees, in a sense, are the first Adam. What happens when the first Adam meets the second Adam? There's a death in the works. The first Adam is going to kill the second Adam. And here is the final and full implication of the grab for life in Eden, of the grab for life at Exodus, in the grab for life in our defiance of the law in our relationship, our orientation to the law. You know, this is Paul's argument in both Romans and Galatians, that all are unrighteous, but through the law we can now trace the course of this unrighteousness, as it is an unrighteousness marked out in our orientation to the law. The orientation is not simply a Jewish problem. Rather, the typical Jew is simply a son of Adam, representative of all humanity, enslaved to sin and death. So then, brethren, Paul says in Romans, in a parallel passage, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Living according to the law is to live according to the flesh in that it's a manipulation of outward things when the real problem is a problem Of the heart. It's a problem that is much bigger than the flesh can handle. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. And living by the law and living according to the flesh, I think this is Paul's picture in Galatians of the elementary principles. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, These are the sons of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery. Who are the slaves? We are all enslaved to sin. We have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. As sons, by by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. The, the, The conclusion here is that the atonement is not simply this abstract doctrine accomplishing personal forgiveness of sins. The cross is the culminating point in God's cosmic plan of redemption in which the human race, captive to the slavery of sin and death, have found release through the defeat of the powers of sin and death. We are no longer under the elemental principles. We are no longer under the principalities and powers. We are no longer under the law. We are no longer the the form of the logic of this world. We are no longer slaves. We have been set free. And those under the law are sometimes, you know, pictured as children. That's what Paul is describing in Galatians. The equivalent of a slave being led along. Paul says we are no longer children. We have passed from knowledge according to the law, the knowledge of the elemental principles, the knowledge of a slave, the knowledge of a child, to an understanding in which we've encountered the reality of the problem. We've received the diagnosis from the great physician. Paul says in Galatians 4, 17, these Jews, these Judaizers, seek you seek to shut you out. They seek to exclude you so that they will seek you out. Now this is sort of what every exclusive club understands. The cool kids at school understand. How do you you be cool? How do you have an exclusive club? Well, you're mainly defined by who can't get in. Uh, And that's what these Judaizers are doing. What the law Makes us aware of is exclusion and alienation. Paul says this is the very basis of your desire. Shutting you out, you will seek them. Paul says Israel was ignorant of the righteousness of God. Israel did not understand or recognize that what God was doing within its history is being fulfilled its covenant purposes are being fulfilled in Christ Now I'm saying this to us here this morning do our traditional doctrines our traditional doctrine of atonement expose the problem or does it aggravate the problem the lens provided by Christ aligned with the law brings into focus the identification of idolatry What is the idolatry that we need to resist today? A Christianity that fails to get in focus through, you know, sin in focus through our understanding of the way that it functions in regard to the law. I'm afraid we misplace the problem and this gets at both Catholic and Protestant theological failures. You know, what does Paul discover on the road to Damascus? Well, in the popular understanding, oh, Paul understands he has a guilty conscience. Oh, Paul, uh, Paul discovers much more than that. He discovers that Christ is Lord. He's Lord of the universe. Uh, you know, the kind of semi-gnostic notions, you know, oh, I just accept Jesus into my heart. I'll go to heaven when I die. Uh, that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about the problem of the malignancy of sin and death in our present tense situation. I think Roman Catholic notions of sacrament, Luther's imputed righteousness, Calvin's penal substitution, what are they missing? They're missing what I just described this morning. We've got a huge problem, the problem of sin and death that's infected us all, and Christ has delivered us from that slavery. So, you know, if we don't ground ourselves in the problem, or recognizing the problem in the Old Testament, we're bound to do a kind of disincarnate sort of religion. That's the Gnosticism. That's the Judaizing tendency. That's the mistake of the Jews that's carried over into this mistaken Christianity in its presumption that the law is the primary thing. That's what Calvin is saying. That's what Anselm of Canterbury is saying. Oh, we got a problem with the law. No, the law is not our problem. Sin and death are our problem. The law is simply a marker of that. In this false Christian understanding, abolish the law, cure the conscience, and go to heaven. That's a total misreading. That's divine satisfaction, though. It completely completely works itself in, out in regard to law. That's Calvin's penal substitution. It's all about the problem of the law. The failure of theology to describe the problem of sin, to name the idol in its seed form. You know, the idol, the, the, the problem can mutate in many different ways. To name the idol, to displace it, I think is coincident with the failure to find continuity. We need to line up what Christ is doing in regard to the law. Law and grace do not stand over and against one another, but they're in continuity. Judaism and the church do not stand over and against one another. They're in continuity. The church, you know, the law or, or grace does not float free and of any ordinary reality. And that's the problem is that in this perverse understanding... When we talk about Christianity, it's kind of pie in the sky, by and by. But what Christ is delivering us from is a real world problem. What is being described in scripture is a real world account of evil and a real world resolution to death.